Good morning. I am Sink Kimmel, one of the deacons here at Hope Cotswold, along with Parker, Melvin, and Forrest Stewart. And I'm going to read our passage for today. It comes out of Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. It's printed in your bulletin, and it should be up on the screen if you want to follow along with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, Once again, Sid, pastor here at Hope. It's good to be with you this morning and also get to open God's word and to study it together. Um, but before I do that, I just want to kind of explain some of the context of what Sink just read in terms of how, why are we looking at Romans 12, um, although it's a good follow-up to, to Romans 7 that we looked at last week. For the last several weeks uh, of the end of 2022 and into 2023, we've been looking at a topical sermon series from Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human. Each week, we're looking to the Bible and connecting how it speaks to some of those themes from particular chapters of Dr. Capick's book. This week's chapter is titled, Do I Need to Be Part of the Church? Do I Need to Be Part of the Church? And it feels like a question in a chapter that has a lot of emotions to it, doesn't it? I mean, the church could be something that we want to go to more of in 2023, like the gym. Or the church can feel like a people we think of fondly or uh, a setting that has great comfort attached to it. Or the church can feel like a people that makes us feel very anxious and it's a setting of great guilt and hurt. Or maybe most likely it feels like all of the above, depending on the day or the minute or the hour. But this makes it all the more important to take our hearts to God's words for us uh, and to see afresh what God says about the church, about you and me and Jesus in that body of his here on earth. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Romans 12. As we do that, to look for guidance, I want to just, would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Let's do that together. God, um, we do just come to you, and we want to sit at your feet. Um, I I pray for wonder. I pray for curiosity. Uh, For some of us, uh, the passage of Romans 12 is is pretty familiar. For others of us, it might be the very first time we've ever heard it. And I just pray that um, you would be with our hearts. Would you keep them tender? Would you prepare the soil for the seed of your word? And Lord, would you um, make us receptive to what you, Holy Spirit, would have to teach us. And we pray that we'd follow you, um, Father, and we just ask that you be with um, this preacher and these words to us. 
and that they would work powerfully in my own life, but also the lives of those gathered here, and that you wouldn't let us leave this room without seeing you, Jesus, high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The story goes that um, George Mallory was once asked why he wanted to climb Mount Everest, and he said, it's a great, because it's there. Because it's there. That just feels really manly. But George, George Mallory's wife, Ruth, gives us a deeper, more personal reason for George Mallory's statement, his quest to climb Mount Everest. And the reason why appears in a letter that he, George, once wrote to his wife, Ruth. And here's what he says. Dearest, you, you must know that the spur to do my best is you and you again. I want more than anything to prove worthy of you. That is, George Mallory climbed Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, to prove himself worthy, valuable, significant, worthy of his wife, worthy to his wife, and I think it's fair to add, worthy of and to his children, and likely a lot of other people around him too. Sadly, George Mallory died in 1924 trying to climb Mount Everest. Even almost 100 years later, we're not quite sure if he actually made the summit of Mount Everest. He disappeared. He was last sighted 100 feet from the summit. So we don't know. But nonetheless, George Mallory gained all kinds of fame in his lifetime and beyond. But it's interesting to read what his son, John Mallory, once said about it. He said, I would so much rather have known my father than to have grown up in the shadow of a legend, a hero as some people perceive him to be. So yes, Mount Everest was there, but so was his son John. He was there too. And the writer Zach Eswine wonders aloud whether Mallory could have proved his worth whether George could have found joy and purpose and significance with his family and in his day job as a teacher. In the ordinary routines of a long life, day upon day. And so Zach Eswine asked this question, a series of questions. So why did George choose to engage the challenges of the mountain, but not the living room? Why did George Mallory choose the mountain when he understood that it might take his life? Why was Mallory's pursuit of joy, the meaning of life, the worthiness of family, and the loyalty to complete a task connected more with climbing a mountain than with the daily routines of love and life, work and play in community at home? And then Eswine answers those questions with a deeper, more personal question. What if, for many of us, the ordinary is the larger mountain. What if for many of us, the ordinary is the larger mountain? I want to pause and make sure we're not kind of weirdly filtering this story. Is that okay? So there's nothing morally wrong with mountain climbing. Even mountain climbing tall and uh, scary mountains like Mount Everest. Not morally wrong. Also, the point of this story is not maybe what you think it is. The point of the story is not 
Christians always choose their biological family over everything. That's not the point of the story either. For some of us here, the larger mountain, what feels scariest to climb, that larger mountain in our lives might be what we do for a living or pursuing a friendship or singleness or married life. A career might be scarier because it's so ordinary. It's so blah, blah, blah. Or a friendship might be scarier because it's riskier to who we are than staying at home with our family. And I want to add that Zach Eswine is writing about this story in a book primarily addressed to pastors like me. <laughs> because pastors like me, I'm like you. I'm constantly trying to prove myself worthy all of the time. <laughs> I want to be significant. In fact, really honestly, almost every day of my professional life and ministry, I have woken up longing for my Mount Everest. <laughs> you know, the mega conference to speak at, <laughs> right? <laughs> or the, the next job that really recognizes me, the hobby that turns into a top-rated podcast. Don't we all want that? Children who rise up and call me blessed. <laughs> That's what we want. You know, the next mountain I can climb to get joy and meaning and worth. And I just can't wait for that moment when I've made it almost to the summit, to the summit, when someone kind of decides to interview me and ask the question, Sid, why did you decide to take on that ministry? Do you know what I'm going to say? Because it was there. <laughs> Mic drop moment, right? That's, that's my heart. <laughs> But in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, it tells, God tells us our worth and our joy, our meaning and our significance are found in what feels like the least likely place. The church. The church. And this is because we think of the church in such a weird way. We think of the church as the Seventh-day Adventist building and not a people. We think of our lives, even our spiritual lives, as separate from the church. Because for so many of us, church is something that happens for an hour on a Sunday or maybe another hour at a church function during the week. But life happens with me out there Monday through Saturday, hustling or relaxing. And if Jesus is involved, he's like sort of a, a virtual coach checking in on how I'm doing with my Bible or prayer or service workouts. But Romans chapter 12 is challenging us to reimagine our self-worth and the church. Imagine a people, you and me, joined together for a joyful purpose, full of significance, Sunday through Sunday, Sunday through Saturday, in here and out there, what does it look like to take on our passage, not just as individual members, but, me but members of one body united in Christ, to take on the world that way? And there's a lot um, in that last bit, and so I think it is helpful just to march through the passage in three points. We'll look at what God through Paul unpacks for us about the church, all with an eye towards how all the things he's saying about the church, how, what do they have to do with our personal significance? So 
first we're going to look at verse 3. Significance starts with Jesus, not I. Second, in verses 4 through 5, we see the significance of Jesus with us. And then finally, in verses 6 through 8, we see significance in you and me for Jesus. So we're going to begin where Paul begins with verse 3 and our self-expectations. And I'm going to adjust this mic. There we go. Okay. So verse 3 tells us that our search for significance starts with our thinking, specifically how we think about ourselves. Here's what verse 3 says. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think of himself or herself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In the original language that Paul wrote this letter in, he's using the same verb, think, with two different little words tagged on to the beginning of the word think. Okay? He says, don't think high or beyond. Don't think high or beyond what's real about yourself. And instead, think soberly. That is, think in proper, grounded-in-reality limits about yourself. So how do we do that? <laughs> it's a big task. What's the solution to our self-image problem where we go way too high about ourselves, maybe way too low about ourselves? How do we think about ourselves soberly? According to the end of verse 3, we estimate ourselves each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to us. Our point of reference is not the rich and the famous. Our point of reference is not someone at home or someone at work or someone on social media that we can kind of look down on or look up to. According to this passage, we start by measuring ourselves with the gospel message. Jesus, the Christ, lived a perfect life, the only human who ever has or ever will live a perfect life, and he died a death on a cross that looked like failure, only so that God could accept us, every part of us, for Christ's sake. This means... There's no evil I'm not able to do or say or think. He had to die for me. No one is too good to be beyond the need of Jesus' rescue. And at the same time, there's no evil I can do or say or think that disqualifies me from God's affection. No one is too bad to be beyond the reach of God's rescue. No one is too good to be beyond the need of Jesus' rescue, and no one is too bad to be beyond the reach of Jesus' rescue. John the Baptist puts all of this sort of self-identity, self-image, succinctly in the beginning of John's gospel. Listen to the way that he puts it. How should we think of ourselves? Not too highly. He says, I am not the Christ. <laughs> but also, at the same time, he thinks of himself according to the Christian faith. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I really love the way that Barbara Duguid unpacks this. She explains how this new self-image actually frees us. And I just want you to think about when you fail again at that thing or in that way. 
when our reality doesn't match up to our expectations we have for ourselves. Hear this. If you're in Christ, you're free to struggle and fail. You're free to grow slowly. You're free at times not to grow at all. You're free to cast yourself on the mercy of God for a lifetime. You don't have to resort to beating yourself up. I don't have to resort to beating myself up in a fit of poor self-image. And when we do succeed, and those moments when our reality feels high and mighty, or at least higher and mightier than the guy next to me, <laughs> hear this. Don't forget who gave you the desire and the ability to overcome these obstacles. God. No matter how you slice it, your strength is not your own. And if you think it is, you might just inflict a great deal of misery on others. <laughs> so celebrate God's outrageous love for bullies and fearful people alike. And it's in this sort of spirit of freedom and celebration that is grounded in reality right? It's the spirit of, of celebration and freedom that's grounded in reality that we can kind of hear the bottom line of who we are. Here's the bottom line of who we are. As you and I believe that Jesus lived and died for us personally, as we believe that, we are really spiritually united to Jesus and to each other. And this is Jesus with us our sermon's second main point. Here's how verses four and five describe that reality. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And we could tell by that little word that verse four starts with, four, that these verses just mean to further anchor us into our sense of significance in Jesus Christ. Not only does our union with Christ give us freedom to fail and to succeed, also being in Jesus scratches that itch we all have for a grander sense of purpose, for adventure. That ache we all have to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And the ways that we get excited about things, right? We see this in all of our life. The excitement we have for a Mount Everest expedition or a family unit or a band of brothers or a music concert or a supper club or a sports team. <laughs> and I can relate to this bigger than myself excitement in a very personal way. Uh, one of my greatest victories in life was uh, on a sports team when I was 10 years old. So, Here's the story, likely from a lack of numbers, um, the south side of Columbus, where I'm from, Columbus, Ohio, they, we kind of put together a rec team that competed against all the teams from all over Columbus, Ohio, um, in a tournament, in a league and then a tournament. Anyway, our coach was my best friend's mom, and she was this little thing, and she had this very simple but effective strategy. She repeatedly shouted the same sentence every game, over and over again for the entire game. And here was the sentence, pass the ball to Eric. Pass the ball to Eric. 
So we would get the ball, we'd pass to Eric Keentz, and he would dribble the length of the field and through the entire team's defense and score a goal. And we just sort of repeated this winning formula every Saturday, week after week. Um, pass the ball to Eric. Eric dribbles, and he dribbles, and he dribbles, and he shoots, and he scores, and he scores, and he scores. This is what we did. Saturday after Saturday, we won every single game this way, right? We went undefeated through league play. And then we advanced through each round of the citywide tournament until we finally won the championship game and we were declared the best 10-year-old recreational soccer team in Columbus, Ohio. There's a photograph I still have in my childhood bedroom of me and my best friend just like feeling the joy of that moment, lifting these trophies high with our, like, our championship shirts. And um, Nick and I are lifting these trophies high, we're smiling, and we're shouting, we won, we won, we won. But there's a part of me now, and maybe even then if I'm honest, that wonders if the we part of we won was actually accurate at all. <laughs> maybe we should have been shouting, Eric won, Eric, he won. So, because Eric scored all the goals. And he, and you know, and he kept the ball away from the other team for most of regulation by dribbling. But, and we wouldn't have won without him. And yet, Eric wouldn't have won without us. He had to have Nick and I and eight other players to field a team. Eric needed us to do some work. We had to defend and we had to steal the ball. And of course, we had to pass the ball to Eric. <laughs> so Eric needed 10 other boys and he needed me to wear the same jersey, and to be on his team. And so we can accurately say two things. No, Sid, you didn't score any of the winning goals, the entire season and the entire tournament. But yes, Sid, you did win. And this is just like the feeling and the true reality behind our union with Christ. Do you see this? Jesus is the Messiah. He scores all the winning goals. And yet we win just by being on the same team as him. You see, what is true of Jesus is now true of us. Jesus' victories are also our victories. So we can, on our own, we're utterly helpless to shout down the lies inside of us. We're utterly helpless to serve the people outside of us. But we've been united by faith to somebody. Someone who is powerful who can and has and will fight battles for us. This Jesus has also asked us to fight our battles with him. This Jesus, has, for reasons I don't really understand, God has made it so that winning doesn't happen without us. He wants us to play the game, to live in and for him. And really, verses 6 through 8 get into the mechanics of, just, of that, how you and I live in and for Jesus. And this is our third and final point this morning. The metaphor Paul uses in verses 4 through 5 kind of gets completed and applied in verses 6 through 8, the last three verses of our passage. Each of us is not the entire body. We're only a body part, an arm or a leg, an eye or an ear. And we're, we're those things by God's gifting. 
And so we're limited, right? An eye is made only to do so much. An eye is primarily for seeing. And it cannot hear. An eyeball can't walk across the street. An eyeball can't grasp a doorknob. And so, too, God has made each of us, you and me, to have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We can only do so much in the church, let alone in the world. And in these limits, each body part is actually mutually dependent upon the other, the others. Because the eyeball can't walk across the street on its own. The eye needs feet and legs and so on, the hip bones connected to the, you know, all, all, all the way through. So too do people at Hope. We need each other. If a pastor like Gordon or me is gifted to teach or even what's called prophecy here, that's just saying applying the Christian faith to a real-life situation of people in Charlotte, if Gordon and I are, de we depend on people who are gifted at serving or gifted at encouraging or gifted at aid, at giving aid, that rounds out the church to be a church that really cares for the community and for each other. We're limited. Each of us can't do everything on our own. And we're also mutually dependent. Each of us needs each of us to point people to Jesus and to do acts of justice and healing and unconditional love in Jesus' name. So Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 is driving in a new way of viewing our personal significance in this life. Hear this if you don't hear anything else, these two statements, okay? If our union with Christ is true, I get significance not just from what I do, what I do as a husband or a father or a pastor or a friend. I get significance also from what Jesus does. And if the church works like Jesus' body, I also get significance and worth from everything everyone does in this church. The local church hope, but also the global church. So let me put it this way. This means every time I counsel someone over a cup of coffee, you get credit. And every time you get down and play on all fours with your toddler, every time you go to work and, and put into the port the chemotherapy IV fluid, every time you provide a commercial space that's affordable to provide warm and delicious food for a local restaurant, I get credit for that. And every time a Christian man in Brazil tells about the hope possible in Jesus' resurrection, and every time a Christian woman in Laos rescues a victim from sex trafficking, we get to share in that too. Listen to how Kelly Capick puts it in his book. I'm doing all of this because I'm part of the living body of Christ. God's Spirit has united me to Christ, and because of that union to my sisters and brothers of the faith, we are one. I'm part of the church, both local and global. I'm not the body, I'm just part of it. But together the body works well and reflects the Messiah's heart as it participates in his actions of love and healing and service. In our union with Christ, we benefit from the vicarious work of Christ. 
and we also benefit in some way from the vicarious work of sisters and brothers in the faith. How cool is that? Look, this means this. The pressure is off. The pressure's off. I don't have to do everything. You can't meet every need, even in your neighborhood, let alone the world. Jesus has given us a whole body of Christian believers to do this with us. We can have significance without pressure. We can work hard with a relaxed heart. And so we can give ourselves the time and the space to discover what specific gift or gifts God's grace has granted to us. And we're invited into this process of discernment in this passage. And sometimes that looks like solitude or a silent retreat, Jesus and you in prayer with a notebook, And other times, that looks like a series of trial and errors in your life about where to live and what to do and who to do that with. But let me tell you what it doesn't look like. This is our default. It doesn't look like looking around and doing whatever the most passionate person does. It doesn't necessarily look like what the most publicly praised people are doing and then just doing that. I'll end with a story and a few kind of like bullet point questions for us to think about. Mother Teresa was a Catholic nun who left her convent and then she, in order to serve the poor people in Calcutta, India, who were dying of AIDS and tuberculosis and leprosy. At the beginning of her work, she often had to beg for food and for medical supplies. But by 1972, she was awarded a Nobel Prize for peace. And then she died in 1997. But during her lifetime, many, many faithful people would make this pilgrimage. And they would travel all the way to Calcutta, India, to be with Mother Teresa. And they would offer their help with her work among the poor who are dying in Calcutta. And there are so many people so often that Mother Teresa developed this sort of response that she would say. She repeated it over and over again. She would begin by affirming the desire to be doing this work, to devote your life to serve Jesus and to take care of the marginalized. She would say this, holiness is not the luxury of a few. It's everyone's duty, yours and mine. But then Mother Teresa would pause. She'd look these sold-out pilgrims in the eye, and she would very calmly and quietly say, Find your Calcutta. Find your own Calcutta. You can do something I cannot do. I can do something you cannot do. Together, let us do something beautiful for God. You see, there's this temptation to copy and paste holiness, right? For me to tell stories like Matt Ham, to listen like Matt Guzzi, to serve the brokenhearted like Gordon Fleming. For all of us to quit our day jobs, fly to Calcutta, and do the same thing as Mother Teresa. But God is asking each of us to get more local and much more creative. Find your own Calcutta. What's something you can do I can't do? What's something I can do that you can't do? And what can we do together that's beautiful for God? Look inside and ask these questions. 
What am I good at? What do I like doing? And don't edit yourself. Even if it's not a likely career, it's easily a passion project. <laughs> and also, do look around and ask, what does the place where I live need? And what are the opportunities at church and in the world where I can serve Jesus? And trust me, there are plenty of opportunities. And while these questions include smaller questions, like what's my job or who's my family, there's a final question that covers every part of our life. Who am I really doing all this for? For Sid? For my wife and family? For the perfect stranger? Or for God, my king? In life, I've found, like Zach S. Wine, that the largest and most exciting mountains to climb are often the most ordinary looking ones, the ones I look past every single day. I've learned to attend funerals, to write handwritten thank you notes, to make the drive and show up in person, to use my imagination to care more about what the person across the table cares about. And maybe, just maybe, we'll find that Mount Everest in our living rooms. And Calcutta will be at the gas station off Wendover. Or with the person who ne you never get around to calling back. But when you get there and stay there, when you pick up the phone or text that person again, <laughs> I want to promise you this, because it's true. Jesus He's already there. He's already there in spirit, but he's often already there in his body too, with people just like you and me, being his hands and his feet here on earth. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the ways that this pushes us in our imaginations and the ways it comforts us in our insecurities. And I pray that we would rest and rejoice, that we'd rest and rejoice in your goodness and your significance, but also in the ways that you include us. And I pray that you would show us even today um, in the next several days in our lives what you're after, what you've given us to give to others. And I'm thankful uh, for passages like this that tell us that you're in charge of the universe and we're not. <laughs> And we get to rest and rejoice in that, even as you give us something, something to climb and something to do. We ask this um, for your sake and with your people all over the world. Amen.